And so to our, to our final guest, Colm Toybin is uh, renowned for being Irish and gay and brilliant, and sometimes all three in his writing and his personal life. He's a novelist, a short story writer, an essayist, a playwright, a journalist, a critic, and most recently a poet. His six novels include The Blackwater Lightship and The Master, both shortlisted for the Booker, and he obviously won the Costa for Brooklyn. And I love his short stories, which I read and reread. Uh, tonight, he reads exclusively from his new collection of essays in which he explores the writerly tradition of using and abusing family. Please welcome Colm Toibin. New ways, uh, new ways to Kill Your Mother, Writers and Their Families, two short sections. Um, Section one, Thomas Mann, new ways to spoil your children. Thomas and Katia Mann had six children. It was obvious from early on that Katia most loved a second child, Klaus. And Thomas loved Erica, the eldest, and also Elizabeth. The other three, the barely tolerated ones, were Golo, Monica, and Michael. Erica remembered a time during the shortages of the First World War when food had to be divided, but there was one fig left over. What did my father do? He gave the fig just to me alone. The other children stared in horror, and my father said sententiously with emphasis, one should get the children used to injustice early. <laughs> Some things ran in the family. Homosexuality, for example. Thomas himself was gay most of the time, as his diaries make clear. So were three of his children, Erica. Also, just most of the time, she made an exception for Bruno Walter, the, com the conductor, among others, Klaus, and then Golo. Suicide was a family theme, too. Both of Thomas Mann's sisters committed suicide, as did his sons, Klaus and Michael, as did the second wife of his brother, Heinrich. Also, gerontophilia. Bruna Volter was almost as old as Erica's father when she had the affair with him. And in 1939, Elizabeth Mann, Thomas Mann's daughter, married the literary critic Giuseppe Antonio Borghese, who was 36 years her senior. And then there is a small matter of incest. <laughs> Much interest in, in this was fueled by incidents in Thomas Mann's own work. In her book um, about the Mann family in the shadow of the Magic Mountain, Andrea Weiss writes, just how much Katia and Klaus Pringsheim, that's Thomas Mann's wife and his brother-in-law, they were, they were twins, loved each other, was the subject of public gossip and private distress. Especially when Thomas Mann, married to Katia for only a few months, used his wife's relationship with her brother as the basis for one of his novellas. The novella, the Blood of the Valsungs dealt with the incestuous relationship between a twin brother and sister. Katia's father attempted to have the story suppressed. Such rumors also existed about Erica and Klaus, much encouraged by Klaus's play on the subject, the siblings. And they made their way into Gestapo reports where the siblings went into exile and FBI reports about them once they had arrived in America. In the mid-1920s, Klaus helped to keep things in the family by having an affair with Erica's first husband, Gustav Grunjens. In his novel, The Volcano, Klaus allowed the character based on his sister to marry the character based on his father. 
In Thomas Mann's The Holy Sinner, the hero, Pope Gregorius, marries his mother, who is also his father's sister. <laughs> in his diaries, Thomas Mann explored his own sexual interest in his son, Klaus. I'm enraptured with Essie, who Klaus's um, pet name in the family. He wrote in 1920, when Klaus was 14, terribly handsome in his swimming trunks. Find it quite natural that I should fall in love with my son. It seems I'm once and for all done with women. Essie was lying tanned and shirtless on his bed reading. I was disconcerted. Later that year, he came upon Essie totally nude and up to some nonsense by Golo's bed and was deeply struck by his radiant adolescent body. Overwhelming. He used some of this same language to describe Jacob's interest in the young Joseph in his novel Joseph and His Brothers and in the novella Disorder and Early Sorrow, written when Elizabeth was seven. The relationship between the bookish father and the young daughter clearly based heated and fervid enough to make any reader marvel at what a wonderfully daring imagination the old writer was in possession of. So I think that just I don't really have much to say about that other than it seems rather unlike the home life of our own dear queen. <laughs> um, the second section I want to read is John Cheever, New Ways to Make Your Family's Life a Misery. Most of the time, John Cheever hated his wife, Mary. As the position of women in America began to change and Mary Cheever developed independent views and ambitions, her husband's temper was not improved. Educating an unintelligent woman, he remarked, is like letting a rattlesnake into the house. She cannot add a column of figures or make a bed, but she will lecture you on the inner symbolism of Camus while the dinner burns. (laughs) Just as the position of women was changing in America, so too the prejudice against homosexuals was fading. While Cheever was threatened by the former, it was obvious that the latter would have a profound effect on him once he left his own house in Ossinging and took a look at the world. In 1973, when he began teaching at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, he had T.C. Boyle Ron Hansen, and Alan Garganus as students. Not only were these talented young writers, but one of them, Garganus, was extremely handsome and quite insouciantly gay, as his biographer says. As Chiefer admired Garganus's work and introduced him to William Maxwell of The New Yorker, who published one of his stories, he presumed that Garganus would return the compliment by sleeping with him despite the fact that he was almost 15 years older than Garganus's father. Some of his letters to Garganus were playful, including the one where he asked, in return for the Maxwell introduction, for some favors. Quote, all I expect is that you learn to cook. Service me sexually from three to seven times a day. Never interrupt me. Contradict me or reflect in any way on the beauty of my prose, my intellect, or my person. You must also play soccer, hockey, and football. (laughs) Garganus let him know as sweetly as he could that while he liked him, he did not want to sleep with him. How dare he refuse me in favor of some dim-witted major in decorative arts, Cheever wrote. He asked Garganus to consider whether such figures appreciate the excellence of your character and the fineness of your mind. What Cheever was really looking for, as Garganus put it, was somebody 
who was literary, intelligent, attractive, and manly, but gay on a technicality. <laughs> Early in 1977, at the University of Utah, Cheever met Max Zimmer, a PhD candidate in his early 30s who had been brought up a Mormon. Since Cheever took the view that sexual stimulation could improve his eyesight, <laughs> part of Max's function, once their affair began, was to offer the same, the same comfort as a good pair of spectacles might have. <laughs> when driving at night, Cheever used to ask his wife to fondle his penis to a bone. Whenever Max submitted a manuscript, Cheever's biographer writes, Cheever would first insist that the young man helped clear his vision with a hand job. <laughs> then, as Max noticed in his journal, Cheever would take my story upstairs and come back down with a remote look of consternation on his face and with criticisms so remote that they only increase my confusion. As he made an effort, finally, at the end of his life, to repair the damage he had done to his family. John Cheever was aware that his journals, 4,000 pages of them, lay in a drawer like a lovely toy time bomb. Two weeks before he died, he phoned his son, Ben. What I wanted to tell you, he said, is that your father has had his cock sucked by quite a few disreputable characters. <laughs> I thought I'd tell you that because sooner or later, somebody is going to tell you, and I just as soon it came from me. <laughs> ben wrote that he was forgiving, but mostly I was just bewildered. And I remember now that my reply came almost as a whisper. I don't mind, Daddy, if you don't mind. <laughs> After his death, when Susan, his daughter, read the diaries, needing to flesh things out for her memoir, she was pretty surprised by the general tone and content and not only because of the gloomy, relentless sexual stuff. The New Yorker and Knopf paid 1.2 million for the rights to publish the diaries, and they appeared in 1991. Mary Cheever, who had stayed with John Cheever until the end, did not read them. I didn't have any strong feelings about whether they were published or not. I can't read them. Snatches of them I've read, but I can't sit down and read that stuff. It isn't my life at all. It's him. It's all him. It's all inside him. <laughs> Suddenly thinking what might be in my dad's bottom drawer. Um, uh, in, in, in any case, um, so... So reading, reading this collection of, collection of essays and then the acknowledgements, it's obvious that you've, you've written stuff before and you've been very focused and interested on this relation, these sorts of relationships. Has it kind of accrued as a sediment? Is it something that you've gone out of your way to find? Yes, it is, in, in the sense that if any book came my way, I was, I was offered where I could look into this or deal with it. Um, than, than, than I would. For example, when I went to look at the huge Yeats archive of all the letters of W.B. Yeats's family, what I went for, almost on, you know, with, without thinking even, were the letters between Yeats's father and his son, when the father was an old man starting to write himself and writing to his son uh, almost like an infant, looking for approval. And no one else had done this work, even though a good number of people had gone through this archive. So I realized it was me, it was just me, yeah, just me. 
It's, it, I mean, the, the Yeats stuff is particularly awful because his, his, his father, who is this kind of, as you say, he's a connoisseur of incompletion, writes to him from New York, where, by the way, he's being funded by his son. Um, and, and he says to him, you know, I'm, I'm working on a play and it's wonderful. And, and how many years does he work on it for before he does? And then his son destroys him. Yeah, his son goes silent. I mean, he was a marvellous old man. Um, I mean... Um, in, in 1906, to get away from his son and his son's influence, he said he was the only man who lived old enough to be influenced by his son. He, he went to New York and really demanded his son look after him, lived in a boarding house and loved the place and lived for 16 more years there um, and was, a, was, a, was an eternal optimist and wrote wonderful letters. But I wasn't interested in those letters, which are really are very good, but the business where he starts to write... What he gets from his son is magisterial silence, followed finally by a magisterial put-down. And this idea of a new way to kill your father, of get your father writing in his old age and tell him it's no use, would be an interesting, I think, way to do that. I think, I think it's devastating. He says, you've chosen the most difficult of all the art forms. Dot, dot, dot. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a fairly devastating put down. And the same is true of, um, of V.S. Naipaul as well, um, with, his, with his father having written before, um, and he's, he, he's writing back to his father. Um, in, your, in your own family, your, your mother was the person who, who and also your uncle, uh, who, who were writers. How were you influenced by them or the absence of, of their writing? Um, I think the Naipaul book is a much more tender book where he's writing to his father from England, and his father is in Port of Spain, and his father's a journalist, and his father had published one book of stories. And he really wants to say to his father, no, no, try again, write 500 words a day. And his father's writing back, look, I will try. It's hard to know what to do, but I will try. And it's clear then that his father's death comes to Naipaul as a devastating blow. It's a, it's a much more tender mm. book than that. And it was something when I read, in a way I recognized more in that of myself than I did in the Yeats story, where, you know, a lot of us come out of silence. In a way, every writer comes out of silence. Um, and there are very few writers whose father wrote Lucky Jim and they wrote Money. You know, it isn't, it, it isn't a usual thing to happen. And um, so, so that, that there, a lot of people come out of houses where there were books, where someone tried it, where it was mentioned as something that, that was worth doing. And so that failure is not merely, I think, the failure was in the air, but that idea of striving, that idea that this was as important as maybe in a millionaire's house or in a miser's house, money might be important. So I, I come out of a world where books and words were important, perhaps more important than anything else, but also where the people in the previous generation who had tried it had not gone on with it or had died young. And thus it was, there was an element of shadow, but not merely of shadow, but of fulfilling something. Of, of trying to finish things, of trying to get things done because they didn't get the chance or they didn't uh, or do it, and that it was my job then not to go on with that. So it was, it was fulfilling perhaps what they hadn't rather than overshadowing in the manner of, in the manner of Yeats, that, that, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, and also a, a, a kind of accompanying this is the, 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 a guest at the feast. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, um, I, I, I've been trying to write... I mean, I, I, it is an interesting idea, autobiography and memoir. Um, and I was trying to write uh, uh, just a, a memoir about things I remembered and noticed that had stayed with me without doing any form of self-examination, that I was leaving that. 
I don't know until when, but perhaps leave it to God. That's perhaps what God is for. His job is to examine you and tell you how wrong you were. And your job is, in the meantime, to try and work out, is there any way you can distract God <laughs> and tell God, no, no, what's really important is I remember a day going into a certain room and what the room looked like, an aunt's house or a trip to Wexford or going to the sea. So I was trying to write those images um, like a failed poet might work where I'd failed to write poems about them, and here I was stuck with this prose business. But I, the title of Guest at the Feast, which isn't, was an idea of life itself, of being at something and being just invited for a while and trying to make the best of it, or at least eat as much as you could while you were there, and maybe take some home if it let you. <laughs> Uh, you, you talk about, about Thomas McGreevy, um, and, and you, you say, like many before him and after him, he was homosexual abroad, but celibate in Ireland. Um, and, when, and when he mentioned his sexual inclinations to a priest, who obviously wasn't Richard Holloway, the priest told him to kick himself every time he had such thoughts. Um, and when you graduated, uh, you went straight to Barcelona. Now, what was happening there? Um, well, I think, I mean, there is a sort of shadow sentence after that about being um, homosexual abroad and celibate in Ireland, which was that he, um, you know, a daily massage with a happy ending was replaced by daily mass with Holy Communion in the case of McGreevy. I mean, it was terribly interesting that um, he was a great friend of Joyce's, of Beckett's. Yeats's wife adored him. They all just presumed he was homosexual. He was their homosexual friend. People like to have one, at least. And, um, um, and, um, but, of course, he came back into Ireland in the 50s, and he was director of the National Gallery. And he was a public figure. And he replaced, yes, yes, he certainly, people knew him as this celibate, dapper figure. There was no mention of his homosexuality. He obviously did kick himself or worked it out of his system. But, of course, he didn't. Of course, it was Ireland. It was coming back into this conservative place and being trapped in it. And he replaced it with silence. And so you can watch, you can chart that and you can see it. it. It's one very good example of that. In my own case, I mean, I was 20 years old, and I, I honestly didn't. I mean, I, I've written about this. It, it's a story in The Empty Family, and I have I mean, I got tired making stories up. I just thought they were a way of disguising and concealing things. And also, poets get to write stories. You know, the, the, the poets write a poem to autumn, and then the next page, you turn the page, and you realize, this happened to the poet. This couldn't be made up. So I thought, it's about time prose writers took some of that you know, back. So I wrote a story, it's in the book, and it's called Barcelona 1975. And every word of it is true. And I was an innocent 20-year-old boy, and I could not understand why these two guys were following me. And once it struck me, it filled me with glee and pleasure. And um, I had an amazing time with both of them. But I, I mean, it, it didn't... It didn't stop me being embarrassed. And I mean, I attended, I, I, as Franco was dying in, and we should have all been on the streets or following his death closely, I noticed that no one cared about his death. We were all much more interested in the fact that there were regular orgies in this apartment in a corner of Plaza Real. And I, I mean, I, what I would say, I wrote in the story was, if there had been an Irish orgy in 1975, and I wasn't aware that there, I mean, there wasn't one, people would have got, <laughs> people, I mean, really, really, if there had been one, I would have some way nosed it out. Um, that everyone would have got terribly drunk first, so that you could just say, oh, look, I was drunk, I didn't mean it. But Spaniards or Catalans in 1975, no one drank before the orgy. And then I discovered orgies had rules, and of course I was interested in breaking them immediately. 
but so... What were um, the rules? Well, that... Oh, I'm not going to go into great detail with a mixed audience and a former bishop in the hall, but... Um, the the but, latter absolves you of the former, but, and they're um, not that mixed. Well, I think that they, they, they wanted everyone to go into couples and stay in the couple, and you could just, you know, be in your, in your, in your you know, um, monogamous time. Which, whereas I thought this was the whole point of an orgy was that you could, like, move regularly. <laughs> and, uh, it's more of a kind of buffet than a yeah, committed Yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, I think if there had been an, an orgy in Ireland, you would have found it or started it. Um, and um, so I'll take, I'll take questions. Okay, Sylvia, of course. Oh my God, oh, oh no. I know. I, this is a, an interesting question. I mean, talking about going back to Chris earlier and sort of being on the internet and sort of being distracted by things sometimes, how do you maintain your quite considerable output? I mean, you've written quite interestingly about the room that you write in, so I think that might be a good, a good way to go with it. But how do you do that? Um, I think the first thing is, I, I, I think it might be important if you finished everything you started. And I think that's, um, it's important because often what happens is that an idea moves into rhythm and it happens of its own accord. You get a sentence, something, a character, an image, an idea, something, something, moves into rhythm, and it's almost like a composer might get a melody, and you write it down. The problem then is that you know the rest, that you've had that pleasure, and the rest is simply called work, and you don't need to do it because you know it. And so you could leave scraps and think, well, you know, I just wasn't that interested in finishing it. But if you, if you get to work on it, if you say, no, no, if I don't finish this, no one else will, and I must finish it. And, and, and so you've, you, halfway through, something else happens that you didn't think could happen, where another rhythm comes, or a set of images come that, that really were, were impossible beforehand, and that you will discover something as you work. But if you don't do that work, and the only way to do it is to do it. I mean, the only way to work is to work. How do you write a novel? You write a novel. Why are you not writing it now? Go home. And, um, <laughs> and the enemies, the enemies are, I mean, there's some enemies, enemies are, the main enemy is just you, the eunice of you. Stop being you, you don't need to be you. There's no need for you today. No one wants you. <laughs> but, so, so in other words, for, I mean, it's what Chris was talking about, that idea of forgetting yourself and just leaving yourself outside the door and becoming the rhythm, the character, whatever, whatever you're doing, and, and finishing it. Get, you know, get up early and finish. Stop drinking, for example, and finish it. And, you know, uh, so that's, that's what I think about, yeah. I was just, you know, the, the, there's so many writers in the audience and I'm looking at all their faces and they're going, I really fucking need to go, I just need to go right now. You know, if I can, if I can get a cab, I can just get a chapter in, you know. Oh, I can get it done. Um, I, know, I know that there are more questions and I know there are more things we want to talk about. We have run over and I'm going to have to leave it there and I'm going to say a huge thank you to Colm Toybin. Thank you, thank you.